Section four of Bits About Home Matters by Helen Hunt Jackson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section four. Breaking the will. The phrase is going out of use. It is high time it did. If the thing it represents would also cease, there would be stronger and freer men and women. But the phrase is still sometimes heard and there are still conscientious fathers and mothers who believe they do God's service in setting about the thing. I have more than once said to a parent who used these words, Will you tell me just what you mean by that? Of course you do not mean exactly what you say. Yes, I do. I mean that the child's will is to be once for all broken, that he is to learn that my will is to be law. The sooner he learns this, the better. But is it to your will simply as will that he is to yield, simply as the weaker yields to the stronger, almost as matters yields to force? For what reason is he to do this? Why, because I know what is best for him and what is right and he does not. Ah, that is a very different thing. He is then to do the thing that you tell him to do because that thing is right and is needful for him. You are his guide on the road over which you have gone and he has not. You are an interpreter, a helper. You know better than he does about all things, and your knowledge is to teach his ignorance. Certainly that is what I mean, a pretty state of things it would be if children were to be allowed to think they know as much as their parents. There is no way except to break their wills in the beginning. But you have just said that it is not to your will as will that he is to yield, but to your superior knowledge and experience. That surely is not breaking his will. It is of all things farthest removed from it. It is educating his will. It is teaching him how to will. This sounds dangerous, but the logic is not easily turned aside, and there is little left for the advocate of will-breaking but to fall back on some texts in the Bible which have been so often misquoted in this connection that one can hardly hear them with patience. To children obey your parents was added in the Lord, and because it is right, not because they are your parents. Spare the rod has been quite gratuitously assumed to mean spare blows. Rod means here, as elsewhere, simply punishment. We are not told to train up a child to have no will but her own, but in the way in which he should go, and to the end that when he is old he should not depart from it, i.e. that his will should be so educated that he will choose to walk in the right way still. Suppose a child's will to be actually broken. Suppose him to be so trained that he has no will but to obey his parents. What is to become of this helpless machine which has no central spring of independent action? Can we stand by each minute of each hour of each day and say to the automata, go here or go there? Can we be sure of living as long as they live? Can we wind them up like seventy-year-old clocks and leave them? But this is idle. It is not, thank God, in the power of any man or woman to break a child's will. They may kill the child's body in trying, like that still unhung clergyman in western New York who whipped his three-year-old son to death for refusing to repeat a prayer to his stepmother. Bodies are frail things. There are more child martyrs than will be known until the bodies terrestrial are done with. But by one escape or another, the will, the soul, goes free. 
Sooner or later every human being comes to know and prove his own estate that freedom of will is the only freedom for which there are no chains possible, and that in nature's whole reign of law nothing is so largely provided for as liberty. Sooner or later all this must come. But if it comes later, it comes through clouds of antagonism, and after days of fight, and is hard-bought. It should come sooner, like the kingdom of God, which it is, without observation, gracious as sunshine, sweet as dew. It should begin with the infant's first dawning of comprehension that there are two courses of action, two qualities of conduct, one wise, the other foolish, one right, the other wrong. I am sure, for I have seen that a child's moral perceptions can be so made clear, and his will so made strong and upright, that before he is ten years old, he will see and take his way through all common days rightly and bravely. Will he always act up to his highest moral perceptions? No. Do we? But one right decision that he makes voluntarily, unbiased by the assertion of authority or the threat of punishment, is worth more to him in development of moral character than a thousand in which he simply does what he is compelled to do by some sort of outside pressure. I read once, in a book intended for the guidance of mothers, a story of a little child who, in repeating his letters one day, suddenly refused to say A. All the other letters he repeated again and again, unhesitatingly, but A he would not, and persisted in declaring that he could not say. He was severely whipped, but still persisted. It now became a contest of wills. He was whipped again and again and again. In the intervals between the whippings, the primer was presented to him, and he was told that he would be whipped again if he did not mind his mother and say A. I forget how many times he was whipped but it was almost too many times to be believed. The fight was a terrible one. At last, in a paroxysm of his crying under the blows, the mother thought she heard him sob out A, and the victory was considered to be won. A little boy whom I know once had a similar contest over a letter of the alphabet. But the contest was with himself, and his mother was the faithful great heart who helped him through. The story is so remarkable that I have long wanted all mothers to know it. It is as perfect an illustration of what I mean by educating the will as the other one is of what is called breaking it. Willie was about four years old. He had a large active brain, sensitive temperament and indomitable spirit. He was and is an uncommon child. Common methods of what is commonly supposed to be discipline would, if he had survived them, have made a very bad boy of him. He had great difficulty in pronouncing the letter G so much that he had formed almost a habit of omitting. One day his mother said, not dreaming of any special contest, This time you must say G. It is an ugly old letter, and I ain't ever going to try to say it again, said Willie, repeating the alphabet very rapidly from beginning to end without the G. Like a wise mother, she did not open at once on a struggle, but said pleasantly, Ah, you did not get it in that time. Try again. Go more slowly and we will have it. It was all in vain, and it soon began to look more like real obstinacy on Willie's part than anything she had ever seen in him. She has often told me how he hesitated before entering on the campaign. I always knew, she said, that Willie's real fight was with himself, would be no matter of a few hours, and it was a particularly inconvenient time for me just then to give up a day to it. 
but it seemed on the whole best not to put it off. So she said, Now, Willie, you can't get along without the letter G. The longer you put off saying it, the harder it will be for you to say it at last, and we will have it settled now once and for all. You are never going to let a little bit of a letter like that be stronger than Willie. We will not go out of this room till you have said it. Unfortunately, Willie's will had already taken its stand. However, the mother made no authoritative demand that he should pronounce the letter as a matter of obedience to her. Because it was a thing intrinsically necessary for him to do, she would see, at any cost to herself or to him, that he did it. But he must do it voluntarily, and she would wait till he had. The morning wore on. She busied herself with other matters and left Willie to himself, now and then asking with a smile, Well, isn't my little boy stronger than that ugly old letter yet? Willie was sulky. He understood in that early stage all that was involved. Dinner time came. Aren't you going to dinner, Mamma? Oh, no, dear, not unless you say G so that you can go too. Mamma will stay by her little boy until he is out of this trouble. The dinner was brought up and they ate it together. She was cheerful and kind, but so serious that he felt the constant pressure of her pain. The afternoon dragged slowly on to night. Willie cried now and then, and she took him in her lap and said, Dear, you will be happy as soon as you say that letter, and Mamma will be happy too, and we can't either of us be happy until you do. Oh, Mamma, why don't you make me say it? This he had said several times before the affair was over. Because, dear, you must make yourself say it. I am helping you make yourself say it, for I shall not let you go out of this room, nor go out myself, till you do say it. But that is all I shall do to help you. I am listening, listening all the time, and if you say it, in ever so little a whisper, I shall hear you. That is all Mamma can do for you. Bedtime came. Willie went to bed, unkissed and sad. The next morning, when Willie's mother opened her eyes, she saw Willie sitting up in his crib and looking at her steadfastly. As soon as he saw that she was awake, he exclaimed, Mamma, I can't say it, and you know I can't say it. You are naughty, Mamma, and you don't love me. Her heart sank within her, but she patiently went again and again over yesterday's ground. Willie cried. He ate very little breakfast. He stood at the window in a listless attitude of discouraged misery, which he said cut her to the heart. Once in a while he would ask for some plaything which he did not usually have. She gave him whatever he asked for, but he could not play. She kept up an appearance of being busy with her sewing, but she was far more unhappy than Willie. Dinner was brought up to them. Willie said, Mama, this ain't a bit good dinner. She replied, Yes, it is, darling, just as good as we ever have. It is only because we are eating it alone, and poor Papa is sad too, taking his all alone downstairs. At this, Willie burst out into a hysterical fit of crying and sobbing. I shall never see my Papa again in this world. Then his mother broke down too and cried as hard as he did, but she said, Oh, yes, you will, dear. I think you will say that letter before tea-time, and we will have a very nice evening downstairs. I can't say it. I try all the time, and I can't say it. And if you keep me here till I die, I shan't ever say it. The second night settled down dark and gloomy, and Willie cried himself to sleep. His mother was ill from anxiety and confinement, but she never faltered. She told me she resolved that night that if it were necessary, she would stay in that room with Willie a month. 
The next morning she said to him more seriously than before, Now, Willie, you are not only a foolish little boy, you are unkind, you are making everybody unhappy. Mamma is very sorry for you, but she is also very much displeased with you. Mamma will stay here with you till you say that letter, if it is for the rest of your life, but Mamma will not talk with you as she did yesterday. She tried all day yesterday to help you, and you would not help yourself. Today you must do it alone. Mamma, are you sure I shall ever say it? said Willie. Yes, dear, perfectly sure. You will say it some day or other. Do you think I shall say it today? I can't tell. You are not so strong a little boy as I thought. I believed you would say it yesterday. I'm afraid you have some hard work before you. Willie begged her to go down and leave him alone. Then he begged her to shut him up in the closet and see if that wouldn't make him good. Every few minutes he would come and stand before her and say very earnestly, Are you sure I shall say it? He looked very pale, almost as if he had a fit of illness. No wonder. It was the whole battle of life fought at the age of four. It was late in the afternoon of this third day. Willie had been sitting in his little chair looking steadily at the floor for so long a time that his mother was almost frightened. But she hesitated to speak to him, for she felt that the crisis had come. Suddenly he sprang up and walked toward her with all the deliberate firmness of a man in his whole bearing. She says there was something in his face which she has never seen since and does not expect to see till he is thirty years old. Mama, said he. Well, dear, said his mother, trembling so that she could hardly speak. Mama, he repeated in a loud, sharp tone, G, 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 and then he burst into a fit of crying, which she had hard work to stop. It was over. Willie is now ten years old. From that day to this, his mother has never had a contest with him. She's always been able to leave all practical questions affecting his behaviour to his own decision, merely saying, Willie, I think this or that will be better. His self-control and gentleness are wonderful to see, and the blending in his face of childlike simplicity and purity with manly strength is something which I have only once seen equalled. For a few days he went about the house shouting, Gee, 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 at the top of his voice. He was heard asking playmates if they could say gee, and who showed them how. For several years he used often to allude to the affair, saying, do you remember, Mamma, that dreadful time when I wouldn't say G? He always used the verb wouldn't in speaking of it. Once, when he was sick, he said, Mamma, do you think I could have said G any sooner than I did? I have never felt certain about that, Willie, she said. What do you think? I think I could have said it a few minutes sooner. I was saying it to myself as long as that, said Willie. It was singular that, although up to this time he had never been able to pronounce the letter with any distinctness, when he first made up his mind in the instance to say it, he enunciated it with perfect clearness, and never again went back to the old imperfect pronunciation. Few mothers, perhaps, would be able to give up two whole days to such a battle as this. Other children, other duties would interfere but the same principle could be carried out without the mother's remaining herself by the child's side all the time. Moreover, not one child in a thousand would hold out as Willie did. In all ordinary cases, a few hours would suffice. And after all, what would the sacrifice of even two days be in comparison with the time saved in years to come? 
if there were no stronger motive than one of policy of desire to take the course easiest to themselves mothers might well resolve that their first aim should be to educate their children's wills and make them strong instead of to conquer and break them End of chapter 4